Hi guys, today's episode is a bit of a mess. It's gonna be cut with different audio, different places because the camera had issues, it's hot outside, the mic had issues, there's people cutting wood outside. It's just a mess, it's just a mess. So it's gonna be a little bit shorter today. I apologize for that. I will do a longer one next week or I'll make it up to you midweek or something. I will find a way to do it. I'm back in the States on Sunday night. So please be patient with me. I sincerely apologize. I'm doing the best I can with the internet and the camera and the situation and everything else. I'm on vacation anyway, so I'm doing do whatever I can. So I apologize for that. I, uh, it's just been one of those days. Okay. So, and without further ado, in any event, on to the live chat. Hi everybody. Luke Thomas here. It's uh, Friday. I'm not sure what the date is, but it's one day before UFC Singapore. And uh, this is my live chat. Luke Thomas live chat episode four. Hope you're doing well. As you can tell, I'm sweating like a whore in church uh, because I am in the coast now of, uh, Colombia. I'm in Cartagena. Uh, the beach is that way. I'll show you some scenes here in a minute. Well, I'll show you scenes at the end of the chat. Because last time I flipped it around and I lost my focus. I might even have focus now. It's hard for me to tell. But behind me is kind of like marshland. You can see it right there-ish. Um, but the beach is right here behind you. That's a pretty cool view, actually. So I'll show it to you later. Uh, as you guys know, I put a question thread on my community tab on my uh, YouTube channel. Uh, a couple about I think yeah yesterday and uh, I'll pick questions from there best ones well I'll say this the ones that get wrecked the highest will get priority but certainly not exclusivity you might hear my kids screaming she's being attended to she's fine she's just being a kid but uh, if you hear that that's what that is all right let me have a sip of my coffee mm, that is good Oh, you're going to hear some... <laughs> some people doing buzzsaw work down there. That's fucking timely. There's nothing I can do about it, y'all. I know it sounds like shit, but uh, doing inside is not an option, and I don't know where else to do it, so here we are. I'll try and minimize that in post-editing. Depending on how this goes, I might switch up and put on the Rode mic. It's not great audio. I actually prefer the boom, but uh, with the rate of noise outside here. I'm not sure what I'll do, but let's get this going. Plus the sun's about to come out, so it's going to get hot as shit. All right, so let's do this. So yesterday, Nate Diaz put out a statement on Twitter. I didn't see it on Instagram, although he may have reposted it there, saying that uh, he was not going to compete at UFC 244, and the reason why he wasn't going to do that was because uh, he had tested positive for elevated levels of something he didn't know. It turns out by additional reporting over at ESPN that it may have been a SARM. Um, a guy who trains with Mark Bell has a big uh, sort of like guinea pig study he did it himself on um, SARMs. You can go check it out. One of them could be Osterine. In fact, I recommend the, the uh, website Combat, I think it's Combat Law Blog. It's run by Eric McGrocken, and he does a good job uh, talking about that. There's many people who've been hemmed up for Osterine. I think uh, Tom Waller was one, uh, Sugar Sean O'Malley was another, but neither here nor there. And he says he had the option to keep quiet about it and then go and compete at UFC 244 and decided against it. And the reason why he decided against it was because he felt like that would be cheating um, to, to knowingly have something wrong with you and then to go and compete and then to sort of like make excuses for it afterwards. He didn't want to do that. Now, he maintained his innocence the whole time. And in fact, it turns out the reporting from ESPN, so good work by them in this particular regard, is that... Um, he is not even suspended. 
that the apparently the threshold was so low that uh, it didn't really matter. Uh, he can go and he can compete. So as far as they know, UFC 244 is still on. All right, the sound might be different because I had to switch to the, the road mic. I apologize, y'all. I'm, I'm working with what I got here. Anyway, I'll get to it. So what do we make of this Nate Diaz situation? Um, there's a number of different ones you could take here. There's one way to look at this and say if you want, you could blame Diaz for being, uh, you know, employing capricious whims, right? Where he's not even suspended and he's choosing not to fight. Like, you don't have to do that. Why are you doing that? Um, you know, he's not, t according to the reporting, he's not technically being prevented from going. And here's a guy who's been gone for a long time and will just up and walk out of press conferences, will up and walk out of various situations just to accommodate his own, his own world vision, which on some level I think a lot of us respect. On another level, you realize could, if you're trying to work with him, can create a fair number of headaches. I don't think that's an entirely dismissible point of view, but it's not the one that I take. The one that I take here is, man, I'm just so tired of having this conversation over and over again. I get told so often that like, what, what, oh man, we really need hardcore anti-doping in sports. And then you get it and then you realize um, it's just full of contradictions. Uh, there's, a, there's a total uh, philosophical problem with it in terms of what advantages you tolerate, which ones you don't. Um, but in regard to this one, it's like, uh, you know, you barely even know where to begin except to say, first, Remember, if it is Osterine, and I'm guessing here, it may, it may not be, but let's assume that it is. Remember that they're now employing more lenient standards towards Osterine detection because they say they have better standards. Meanwhile, um, the level at which Tom Lawler tested would have been exonerating, but for the fact that when he got tested, USADA claims that their testing was not as good back then. And then you could say, well, shouldn't you apologize to Tom Lawler? And they say, no, we just do the best with what we have at the time we have it. And the point about that is, it's like, dude, what a, what a ridiculous thing to say. What a morally bankrupt, unethical thing to say, to just completely railroad a guy's career for two years. And then to say, oh, you know what? We're not gonna say we goofed, but if, this, if you had tested positive today, you'd be home free, you'd have six months off, big fucking deal, you know? Instead, they gave him two years. And the point about why that's such a problem is I, I've, been, I've been arguing for this. It, people think that what I want is steroids in sports completely. The answer is, in some sports, I don't really care, to be quite honest with you. Like, world's strongest man, I, I don't really care. The answer is sort of individualized through certain sports. In MMA, I don't think that is politically feasible to have no uh, anti-doping uh, at all. And there's also sort of a question there about whether that's even a good idea. So certainly we can agree that it's not politically feasible, but beyond that, um, um, but the point being is you have to have some kind of what I call epistemic humility about all this. When you say you know things, how do you know things? Oh, well, we know if you test positive in whatever year it was that Tom Lawler tested positive, we know that that means that that is either he was using or it was inexcusable. And now you can say, well, he only had failed strict liability. The, the point was to say at the time, maybe there shouldn't be a two-year punishment if your tests can't really tell you if the use was intentional or not, right? The whole point is, yes, you should probably do something. Yes, there should be, there should be some kind of uh, apparatus in place to detect and deter and then enforce punishment. But if what you're admitting now is that your tests have been kind of, to a degree, crude up to this point relative to these very important considerations, how can you then say you have the right to go and punish a guy 
for two years. Now Diaz is in a better spot, but he has decided he doesn't want to sort of operate under the system that everyone else has been operating under, which is just sort of roll through with it, take the cash and say, I'll figure it out later. He, doesn't, he, he, he is not monetarily compelled in that way. And he has, again, he has a certain worldview about it, but it's like, this is all total, I mean, people want to forget about Tom Lawler and they want to forget about everybody else who got royally fucked by USADA and you should not because what it shows you that they will do is whether it's the pulsing hypothesis which they have virtually no evidence for, some, very very little they don't really know what's happening there just, they're just making that up as it goes and again, ties should go to the runner, right? the fighter should benefit from a lack of true scientific consensus but uh, they're just making it up as they go. They don't really know. They didn't do anything on behalf of Tom Lawler. What are you going to do after you railroad him for two years? And then you decide, oh, you know what? Now our tests are better. They'll make it up as they go. And I've been trying to explain this to fighters this whole time, man. And they just don't want to listen to this. And I don't really understand why. Dude, USADA's not your friend. I'm not suggesting to you that they are, not your en they're the, the, that they are your enemy as well. But they are at best a neutral party in this whole thing. And in some ways, I wouldn't even say neutral. And, and the reason why is because, dude... Fighters, listen to me, please. You don't pay USADA. This is not VADA. This is not the Voluntary Anti-Doping Association, which would be very different. This is USADA. Who pays them? It's a very simple question, dude. Who pays them? And the answer is the UFC pays them. So who do you think gets the service here? You or them? The answer is so simple on this one. Dude, the UFC gets it. The UFC, and I know this for a fact, the UFC believes, basically, when it was instituted, that this would be a way to insulate themselves from scandal in the event of some kind of, God forbid, uh, utterly significant scandal where some major uh, injury took place inside the octagon, and God forbid that ever took place, and B, if it ever did, that someone who did the hurting would have been uh, uh, caught using something. It's to, it's to prevent scandalous fallout from that, so they can say, put their hands in the air and say, you know, we did everything we could in terms of a... Uh, anti-doping measure to control for this. And you could understand that to some degree, right? I mean, anti-doping hysteria is so crazy that they have to take under, uh, into consideration these methods to protect themselves. But what it also shows is that when athletes get together like they did in other leagues, and I, you know, easier said than done, and they institute a lax anti-doping policy, whether it's the NBA or the NFL, particularly the NFL where the health outcomes are outrageously terrible, that the fans don't give a shit. This is the thing that kills me. Yesterday I saw uh, my former uh, employer, MMA Fighting, had put out, you know, a pros react kind of post to the whole thing, and it was all these people taking shots at Nate Diaz. Not not everyone. In fact, John Jones, I thought, had the most humility. Made a little bit about himself, but okay, he went through a lot of struggles in that regard. And I'll give credit to John Jones. I thought he had the most humane response to all of it. It's like, dude, the guy's not even suspended, and he's taking the initiative to not compete because this is so sacred to him. And you see so many, and I, you know, I understand like, like Dustin Poirier, you know, uh, who I also like and respect very much. Um, you know, he's still got bitter feelings about Nate pulling out the first time and all this kind of stuff. But you know, you got the other ones out there just going after him. And it's like, dude, this is, this is what I've been trying to say to everybody. You cannot tell me that I need to accept the findings of USADA and then tell me that when their findings are uh, exonerating, that we can then just conveniently ignore them. You cannot. You cannot do that. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to do that now or ever. It's not how any of this works. None of this goes this way, man. This is totally irresponsible, totally unfair. It, all it tells you is the same thing I've been saying since day one. Dude, if you're willing to watch Bellator, which has, I think, a pretty sane and rational um, anti-doping policy, or one, which has virtually none at all, uh, which, you know, for better or for worse, they've got none at all, 
<coughs> and then you and then you want to tell me um, after USADA exonerates either Nate Diaz or somebody else that you're going to ignore that you're just going to pay attention to the punitive side of the equation. I don't believe that you really care about anti-doping. Dude, no system of justice matters if it doesn't take into consideration the rights and privileges and realities of the innocent, of the epistemic humility that has to be involved to make appropriate decisions. You don't, you don't get to make those claims anymore. They're not yours to make. You don't get to say, I really believe in anti-doping, but only when someone's guilty. Not under any other circumstance do I ever care about it. I don't believe you, I, and, no, and no one will believe you, and no one should take you seriously. And certainly, let me tell you something, I do not take you seriously. I do not take anybody seriously when what they really care about is headlines, when they care about the TMZization. And this is the funny part about all of this, too. Taking a sip of my coffee for listening on the podcast. The funny part about all of this is um, I, I set up Google Alerts. And I get Google alerts for like mixed martial arts every day and anti-doping. So anytime anti-doping appears in anything, like a headline or anything, I get, I get an update. And uh, I got one. I get one every day for anti-doping. Dude, do you, know, you know what shows up in my Google alerts every day? Olympics, 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 diving, swimming, uh, Mo Farah, you know, uh, running, cycling, uh, cycling, cycling, cycling. Olympics, 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 and then at the bottom of every one of them, UFC, 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 UFC. You know what's so funny about this? The whole thing about USADA is designed to protect from scandal. But what you do when you bring over USADA with, by the way, zero fighter input whatsoever, which I'll get to in just a moment, um, what you end up doing is you end up scandalizing it in the sport anyway. You're trying to do it to avoid scandal. And I suppose at the very, very terrible end, if something really tragic and traumatic happens, they might have some social insurance, which is really what the whole arrangement is for. They, that, that might actually be true. But in the meantime, every other small detail is utterly scandalized. Understand, dude, Nate Diaz isn't even ineligible to compete. And look at what the headlines are in the New York Times or Yahoo. I saw Dan Wetzel talking about PEDs in New York Times. Same thing. You end up just scandalizing your sport in a way that would have been utterly missing before. You never see NFL in my Google alerts. You never see MLB. You never see NBA. Why? Because people aren't using over there. They're using hand over fist. But their fan bases don't really care. And I don't want to hear about like, oh, the, they're not hitting each other with fists. They're just, the health outcomes in football are as bad, if not way worse than in MMA. I don't want to hear any of that. And by the way, also, as I've said a million times, fighting is not safer now that USADA is here. There is no safe way to fight. It doesn't exist. The only argument about PEDs you can make is that it, it tips the, the, um, the, uh, the fairness equation a little bit, or even a lot to a certain degree. But in any event, and those Google alerts, dude, nothing ever shows up. Look at how many headlines have been created about doping by virtue of USADA's introduction. You didn't less scandalize the sport. You, you took the scandalization to the next level, bro. And then this, I, I said I, I said it earlier about the fighters too. I'm going to say it one more time, dude. These fighters who go in there, I'm like, you saw it. They do they do these like dear leader fucking videos where they're like, I'm so glad you saw us here. What are you doing, dude? They are not your friend, man. I'm not saying they're your enemy, but they are super not your friend. And you need to wake up to that immediately. They will railroad your career 
like that if it suits their interest, whether or not they have evidence for it or not. Go ask Josh Barnett about that if you think I'm playing around. Go ask Tom Lawler about that if you think I'm playing around. Go ask innumerable other fighters. How about Christian Coleman, the sprinter? They couldn't even get their fucking math right on his case. And he went and, he went and meddled, by the way. They couldn't even get their math right. Dude, they will bury you if it suits their interests. They are not your friend. They are not your friend. They take money from a monopsony market power and they never ever really give you a seat at the table. Don't give you this bullshit about how, oh, they'll call us up and ask for our uh, input on this. And we go to the performance institute, they ask us how we really feel. That is, that is cosmetic treatment. All right, if you're watching on the uh, video and not listening on the podcast, I now have to move inside because the camera shut down due to the heat here in the coast. All right, but let me pick up where I left off, namely to the fighters. Th they're not your friend. You saw it. I'm not saying, as, as I said before, I'm not suggesting to you that they're, they're your enemy, but this like buddy-buddy relationship that some of these fighters have, oh, they're really doing us a big service here. Um, in certain intervals, I can believe that they might be right? In certain intervals, they're absolutely not. This idea that they are universally your friend is simply not true. Um, and the bodies are there, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, to utterly and easily substantiate that claim. And I, I made a distinction between Vada and USADA before. Look, man, if the fighters had agreed to, uh, through a union, some kind of implementation from USADA, I'd be okay with it. I wouldn't necessarily think that, that would be the best way to go, but what am I gonna say? Like, this is your career, this is, you have the most stake in the game and you agreed to it, that's fine. And you could say, well, the fighters agreed to it now, right, they don't have a choice. What are they gonna say? I'm gonna sign with the UFC and I'm not gonna do it? I mean, that's not, that's not, that's not real, that's not real agreement. VADA is a little bit different. Now, I don't know that I agree with all of their ideas about the benefits of anti-doping, however, it is voluntary. You, you literally sign up for it. You go to them and you say, as the boxers do, I really want you to take care of me for this fight and for all my other fights, um, or whatever the arrangement might end up being. And that certainly creates some gaps inside the anti-doping space, and that you say, oh, well, cheaters are gonna be able to use inside that space. Look, no system is perfect. I agree that that is a situation that could be considered um, open for opportunity for those who really wanna dope. On the other hand, to me, what's more important is putting some kind of lid on use, not, uh, not letting full use happen, creating some kind of limit for what you allow, um, real and knowable limits, and then getting athlete participation. To me, your system without athlete participation is just fraudulent, and I don't take it seriously, and neither should you. Without your buy-in, fighters are so used to just not having buy-in that the concept of it seems so foreign to them, and I guess it is foreign to them because they've never been given it to them. And then they have someone who presents themselves as an ally. Dude, fighters, again, the UFC pays them, not you. Which master do you think they serve? It ain't you. Sometimes it might be you in certain intervals if they catch some kind of egregious cheater, right, who is flagrantly breaking the rules that would have tipped the balance in a particular bout. Yeah, that might be beneficial. On the other hand, if you go to Whole Foods and you think you're shopping in a way that uh, is uh, above board and then you get caught and they just decide that their detection systems aren't good enough, you could, like Tom Lawler, you could just sit on the shelf for two years. And then two years later, they could say, oh, you know what? We have better detection now. You actually would have been eligible to go and do nothing and you've been fine. They literally have that right now. That, that is, that is, you, you, could, you could absolutely end up 
uh, underneath their thumb or their heel. I mean, you got to stop with this, man. They're not your buddies. Not now, not ever. And to me, without athlete buy-in, this is the kind of thing you're going to get. What the point is, is to put some kind of a lid on use such that with that lid and then the, the um, addition of uh, athlete participation, that to me is a better circumstance than trying to root out without athlete participation and without athlete buy-in every conceivable advantage because you actually put a bit of a lid on it. And I'm not saying Beltor has the best arrangement, but if you actually put some kind of a lid on it, well, then the... I'm not saying that the difference in performance-enhancing drug use becomes negligible, but then you get to a system where the advantages you tolerate versus the ones you don't, then that line begins to get a little blurred. Um, you have a rational policy in, in place. People who might be innocent have a system of exoneration. Uh, people who are egregious users will should or should end up being caught, or and if they will, they'll get the, the appropriate punishment. It's a much healthier system than the one we have now, which is no athlete buy-in, um, you are, I mean, the strict liability concept to me is bankrupt from the word go, but it's the one we're stuck with. Um, and if you end up on the wrong side of them, dude, they will hammer you. They will hammer you. And in the case of Nate, he is lucky enough to be tested at a point where he is not being hammered for that, but he is living in the shadow of everybody else who has suffered. I mean, you know, the, what is USADA really catching, right? Um, they're catching GNC shoppers in the UFC. I mean, you really think that's who's using is these people who are GNC shoppers? And you're like, oh, well, the GNC shopping excuse is not real. No, it absolutely is real. It's as, it's as real as your life. The FDA does a very poor job of regulating and, and uh, checking up on manufacturing standards. And uh, most of these complaints happen after an incident occurs, which is why you thought I can't just go and add supplements to their like danger list because they don't know the shit has to go through somebody's system and they have to get caught and then they have to add it to the list there's no way to know because there's such lax regulation in this particular space um but most of the people they're catching they're catching two kinds of people one supplement users great and then two um these guys who are like obviously using coming off of the regional scene yeah, that's fine i don't really that doesn't really bother me um and i don't think it should really bother you either but you really mean to tell me like that's who is? Oh, they got they got they got T.J. Dillashaw. He's the only one using EPO. Really? Y'all buy that? I don't buy that. I don't buy that even a little bit. Um. So one of these lessons where it's like, dude, I've been saying this since day one. The last thing I'll say in this, and I'll move on to the questions. I've been trying to tell y'all guys, it's not about doing nothing. It's about incorporating a system that is humane, that has epistemic humility, and that understands trying to do what USADA is doing creates more problems than it is worth and has less value than not even close to the value that they present. And without athlete participation, real seat at the table athlete participation, you're going to get this kind of thing too. And there was two articles, the last thing I'll say on this, there were two articles I tweeted this week one from the Washington Post and one from a uh, overseas newspaper. You have the, the, the Rachenko Act through Congress. Dude, they want to put people in jail. That's what they, re that's what they really want to do. What, what anti-doping authorities really want is the power to be police. Yeah? That's why they want to have, have you guys seen this? They want to be involved in detecting and um, um, preventing uh, betting crimes, sports betting crimes. They're all in on that. Um, 
And and what that's what they really, really want at the end of the day. You think like, like these two or four year bands is like what really motivates them. Not really. I mean, that's part of it, but these, those are, by the way, relatively recent because all their old punishments didn't work because, by the way, heavy-handed punishment is not really all that effective. Um, and there's this creeping sense that even these two- and four-year bands, Olympic cycles, which, by the way, make no sense for a sport without an Olympic cycle, that uh, what, what they really need is the power of, the, of, of law enforcement. And they, they want to be law enforcement. Did you see that, that piece that UFC put out on um, Jeff Nowitzki? He's out there with a badge and a shooting at a shooting range and shit. It's like they're treating him like as a sheriff, like he's a sheriff. Well, which is it, man? Are you the are you the ally of the fighters or are you the sheriff? Because you can't be both. It's either one or the other. Uh, oh no, no, the the sheriff can be the ally. Well, sort of, but not really. Certain cases, yeah, but in general, no. So I think the whole thing just underscores. Um, why, why we're wasting our time with this. All right, let's get to some of these questions here while well, I still have some time remaining. Uh, I'd like to hear your opinion on Hardy taking the Volkov fight post-Inhaler Gate. Well, I got a million views about Inhaler Gate, but it's a little late for that now. Um, Hardy can win that one. Uh, he probably shouldn't, but he can. That is a fight where he is probably going to say to himself, I can't win playing it safe. I mean, hard to know because he seems like a bit of a loose cannon when he competes, so I don't really know. But <clears throat> suffice to say, um, he can win that one. He could just go in there and land a huge haymaker. Volkov has been subject to them before, and he can win that one. Like This, that, this idea that Volkov is a much better fighter and therefore he is almost certain to win is very much a mistaken view. He is a much better fighter, yes, that part is true. But in MMA, when you have guys with big power who are fast, who are willing to take risks at heavyweight, crazy things can happen. Now, the truth is, if he's not good enough to keep winning at that level, eventually all of that will, will come undone. But in individual instances, can he, can he show himself to be um, a winning fighter in this particular circumstance? Yeah, he could. I, I, if you're dismissing his chances because Volkov is better, this is the wrong division to do that in. Uh, your opinion on Edward Snowden. I have a high opinion of Edward Snowden. I saw the movie that Oliver Stone made, which was just hey geography. It's not really all that um, helpful or beneficial to you. I read Glenn, uh, Glenn Greenwald's book, Nowhere to Hide, at the time, and that was a much better account because what it shows you is not merely the details of the prison program, not prison, but prism, like a thing you uh, cast light through, but... Uh, it not only went to the, the malfeasance and the law-breaking inside the program, but the great detail that Snowden went through in order to make sure that the wrongdoings were properly shown to the American public. And what he's always said pretty consistently from the word go is that what he really wanted was um, just to have the information out there and then the American public could make a judgment about it for themselves. And, and I think now you're really seeing why he didn't take up any particular whistleblowing um, uh, avenue because that is fraught with, I mean, no situation is not fraught with peril, but that one, the amount of guarantees that that one provides in terms of your safety um, when, you know, journalists are being charged with the Espionage Act like James Risen, um, 
there, there are simply, uh, there's, there's no real protection there. And I think he realized that, and I think he wanted to take his chances doing something else. And you can call that cowardly if you want. Uh, I think he did the American public a great service. I'm not suggesting to you that he's free of blame. I don't think that's the case either. Uh, but in terms of the ways in which he was very careful to collect the information that was most important for the American public to know and then to be very careful in selecting which media outlets to go to, who themselves exercised discretion over what information was eventually released, yes, I do think, um, uh, I think he did, the, I think, you know, do I want to call him a patriot? I, I, I don't know. I don't really think of the world in those terms per se, but... Do I think he did the American public a great service? I really do. Mm -hmm. and, at, and at personal cost, yes. Quite, quite obviously. Uh, will Ben retire if he gets submitted by Maya? Do you agree with Chael that Maya should start the fight with a flying knee? What does Maya have to lose? Why not? Right? Why wouldn't you? Um, do I think Ben will retire if he gets submitted, if he gets submitted by Maya? Man, he might. Hmm? He might. Um, I had put out, a, by the way, I haven't, I, I retweeted without even, I usually don't do this, but I retweeted without even like looking at the video yet. BJJ Scout put out a uh, Askren Maya study. I mean, I could think of no better person to do a study than BJJ Scout in this regard. Um, the one thing I would say is I did a little bit of just thinking about, I went back and I was like watching different fights. Uh, other than the Chael fight, which I think was like 10 years ago, at Maya's like best work comes from um, taking the back. So if... You look at the Jake Shields fight, he was able to prevent that, although Maya wasn't really like aggressively back hunting in the way that he does now. But if you look at the Jake Shields fight, Jake Shields was able to like keep Maya in, on his back in half guard and then, then just defend and ground and pound from there. And people always say, like, well, Jake Shields is, is not Ben Askren, Ben Askren is not Jake Shields. Yeah, of course. They're very, very different kinds of people. They're, about this, there can be no doubt. But at the same time, it's not clear to me why certain portions of what Shields did couldn't be implemented by Askren, I think is my point. Like, what is it that Askren, what is it that Jake Shields did is so esoteric that it couldn't be, I mean, actually, I think there's actually many fighters who could probably replicate that among them Ben Askren. Now, whether he will, how that will go, you know, your guess is really as good as mine, but is that a very doable thing for him? Yeah, I actually think it is a doable thing for him. The question is, uh, is Maya expecting that? What attacks from half guard will he have? Blah, 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 blah. Right, so you get the idea there. What do you think of Jose Aldo moving down to bantamweight? Well, he looked, look, he looks fine now. The question is how he looks on the scale. I mean, I was there at UFC, what was it, 120, well, what, what UFC was it, 118, 121? I forget now. No, not 121. 128, whatever one it was when GSP fought Shields in, uh, in the Rogers Center in Toronto. I was at that one where he completely gassed in the fifth round. Fight, Aldo did, fighting Mark Hominick, and it's like, well, maybe he's got it more under control now, and if he does, and if he can get down to bantamweight and compete reasonably, okay. Um, but, you know, you see these guys, like, you know, Dillashaw was like, I'm got all these, forget all the PED stuff, but he's like, I got all these scientific equations to get down there, and it's like, dude, you got down there, and you got walloped with a big shot, and, he, and it, it did, all the EPO in the world didn't do you any good. Like, that to me is really sort of the lesson there. It's like, whatever, again, I go back to the conversation about advantages. Whatever advantages were conferred from EPO, they were completely wiped away, or seemingly wiped away anyway, by the weight cut, which uh, I think made him utterly susceptible to even moderate power. And I think Henry Sudo is great power, but even moderate power on glancing shots. It, it, it made him very susceptible 
Um, so if Aldo can avoid some of those pitfalls, fine. Let's see how he looks on the scales. Let's see how he looks in combat. It's an interesting fight. I mean, you can't say Moraes versus Aldo is not an interesting contest. It most certainly is, but at the same time, it's like... I don't know. Desperate seems a bit of a strong word, but it's a, it's a shade under that. Or maybe above. How does Askren implement his high wrestling credentials against a sneaky submission artist like Maya? Um, I think by making it a bit of a wrestling match, right? If you can turn it into something like that, then you're probably in good shape. You go back and you watch the, uh, the Ben Askren-Douglas Lima fight, what you noticed in that particular case, which is why I go back to the Jake Shields fight with Demi and Maya, is Askren used to play sort of a bit of a loose top control, mobile passing style, where he would allow guys to get guarded and throw up stuff and then work his way past the triangle and all this kind of stuff. And it ended up being like... Effective in the sense that he would win, but also ineffective in the sense that it would allow his competitors to keep trying things. So the way it works for me is don't do that. Get on top, smash him flat, show what Jake Shields did, which was pin a leg, which means you're going to pin a hip. You know, if it was the gi and you're in half guard, buddy, that's a completely different system because from there they can just set your ass on fire. There's all kinds of lapel and sleeve and pant leg grabs that they can do to hoist you, to flip you, to get underneath you, to submit you from half guard, to back, and there's back takes and nogi from there as well. Uh, a lot of people like half guard, and there's different kinds of half guard. There's like the, the knee shield, there's the Z guard, uh, but it's a much, I would argue that half guard is much more potent with the gi because it provides so many more options. Um, but in MMA, where you have elbows and ground and pound and you can steady a hip flat and you can steady a leg flat, they don't have full use of full guard, quite literally. They don't have full use of even some kind of modified spider or um, or a De La Hiva. They, they, it it kind of takes away all of that. So it, it's really, it's like, it's like surprisingly effective. It's one reason why I think Leon Edwards goes for it. I talk about his half positions. He always goes to it. One of them is he just goes on top on half guard. And the reason why is because it does all those things in MMA. In the gi, it doesn't do that much. In no gi... Um, obviously not nearly as much, but in MMA where you have this concern about ground and pound and you don't have the same gripping systems in place, it, it, for someone who's got good base, which a Olympic wrestler of the caliber of Ben Askren would, yeah, man, it's surprisingly effective. I think it can be. Can you think of any fighters who are one or two wins away from being regarded as all-time greats but whose status was diminished based on a couple of key losses? Aldo would be one. Um, you know, let's say he had beaten McGregor and then beaten Holloway. I don't know. That's, that's goat territory. I want to make sure I'm still in focus. Yeah, we're good. Um, Chael, maybe? I don't know if he would have been gotten considered all-time great, but if, you know, if he'd beaten Anderson Silva, I mean, that would have been pretty big, right? Uh, and he's still, obviously, and even now he's doing great things, but... He achieved a certain degree of, uh, of fame and notoriety and accomplishment, to be clear. It's not to under, undermine him, but um, would he, how much more would it have been had he had assumed the title? Probably, uh, probably significant, you know? Um, so he'd be one. Aldo, Aldo obviously held the title for a long time, but uh, it would be another. Um, I wonder what would have happened if Machida had held the light heavyweight title longer than he did. Um... Alvarez, if he had beaten McGregor, you know? 
There's a lot of different intervals related to McGregor, especially. Uh, one, Volkov will be the toughest test for Hardy. Do you think he is ready? He will be the toughest test on paper. In reality, how he fights, I don't know. Does he pump the jab? Does he really use that range? You know, I don't know. I don't know what he's going to do. So far, Askren's UFC career has been very poor, this person says. If he loses to Maya, does he risk damaging his own legacy? A little bit. On the other hand, this is the part that like kind of kills me about the whole Askren thing. I was watching when he was beating guys like Douglas Lima and um, uh, who's the guy he just demolished? Um, Koreshkov and, uh, and uh, Carl Amasu when he was fighting in Bellator back when he was 25. Guys, he's 34. I mean, this is bonus time for him. To, you know, uh, And he had time off, and he didn't really have the toughest challenges in his prime. Like He didn't really get suited up for this current predicament. To me, any winning he does at this level is frankly kind of remarkable. You know, I have a high opinion of Ben Askren. I think he's a phenomenal talent. Um, and under the right matchups, he can do great things. But, he, he, you know, the thing about it, it's like, oh, well, they made a great trade and better late than never. Yes, better late than never. But you're seeing why better late than never sometimes may not be that great because you have a guy of this caliber of ability and you missed his prime, man. You know, or he's at the very tail end of it anyway. Uh it would have been better to get when he would do what he was doing. He was doing in Bellator, just just running through people, and you can say, "Oh, that's Bellator." Okay, but that's what he was supposed to be doing at that time in his career, in the way that he was doing it, and then graduate to that next level, and then he couldn't do it, and then he couldn't do it, and here we are trying to make up for lost time. We'll see if it's possible. Lee versus Gillespie is my second most anticipated fight of UFC 244 after the main event. How do you see that fight? I kind of went over that last week, so I don't want to repeat it here in the interest of time. But suffice to say, and you've heard Kevin Lee acknowledge this, that's a hell of a contest. Roy McDonald and Douglas Lima are fighting, I think this is now, he says tomorrow, it's today. And what I think might be the best welterweight fight of the year, regardless of promotion, and yet there seems to be absolutely no buzz whatsoever for it. There, I mean, I'm not in the States, but I certainly get that impression as well. Who do you think wins this fight? Um... I don't know. I got a weird Douglas Lima vibe. I mean, that could be... I, I, the answer is I don't know. The thing about predictions is, you know, my dad has, you know, taken interest in my career of late, uh, <laughs> 12, 12, 13, 14 years after the fact, but he sort of was asking, like, why don't you set up a site and then give predictions for people? And I was trying to tell him, one, I don't think I'm very good at predictions, but two, I could probably get better at them if I had, like, a lot of time to strictly devote to just watching tape on everybody and picking up clues. Because, like, if I really dig into a fight, I get them right, I get them wrong, but I, I think I do a little bit better. I get a, a little bit more right when I really have time to look at the person's you know career. But there's so many fights that are just coming and going and so many things you have to do that don't involve tape study that you can lose track of who's doing what. In any event, uh, so you know, I explained to you, you can't really do that. Um, so I don't really know who's going to win or lose, but I kind of feel like Rory McDonald's not what he once was, and I feel like Douglas Lima is the best version of himself. And at a bare minimum, that makes it probably more competitive than the last one. And the last one was very competitive up until Rory began his wrestling. Um, and even through there, you saw Douglas Lima has a very good guard. A very good guard. So, like, Rory probably... Let me see what the odds are in this one. Best fight odds. My hunch is that Rory is probably a slight favorite. No, he's the underdog. Yeah, that, actually, that's right to me. Yeah, like Douglas Lima is a different is a different animal now. Should McGregor fight Gaethje or Cerrone on January eighteenth? Well, it depends what you want. If you want a better fight, I think you get a better fight with McGregor versus Gaethje. 
if you want McGregor to get a bit of a tune-up, and again, I don't consider Cerrone a true tune-up in that regard. What I mean to say is, um, rel um, relative to Gaethje, I don't think it's as difficult to fight. I could be wrong about that, but I don't think it's as difficult to fight. And two, uh, I think he matches up better with Cerrone than he does with Gaethje, which allows him a bit of a uh, somewhat of a softer landing for a reintroduction. If you want to give him Gaethje, uh, you know, I'm not saying he can't be Gaethje or won't be Gaethje, but to me that's a much tougher fight. So really it depends on what you want out of McGregor in his future. If you want to give him just the toughest fight possible, you know, you give him Gaethje basically. And you could say, well, what about Habib and Antonio? I'm putting them separate because they have their own business to settle. I mean, among available contenders. What's the proudest achievement of your career? Um... I don't know. I don't know that I've achieved anything all that noteworthy. Uh, you mean like my personal life? I mean, becoming a Marine was great. Uh, graduating from college was cool. Uh, becoming a dad is great. Um, having this audience has been a blessing. I don't know that I have anything that particularly stands out. Um, uh, yeah, I, haven't, I don't think I've done enough of the right work to merit a uh any particular kind of salute but that's not like false modesty either like I'm, I'm being dead serious i mean there's been things i'm proud of but i don't know let me pick through a bunch of these because i'm gonna have to cut this one a little bit short who's your favorite comedian that's easy oh he's not alive but patrice o'neill um people think that because of my politics i'm somehow in love with the idea of what my side of the aisle does towards um, comedy and, and uh, political speech, and it couldn't be further from the truth. I can't stand this new generation of Netflix comedians, uh, not all of them, certainly not in every regard, but a lot of them who I call good boys. Like, um, uh, God, what's the guy? The dog from Netflix is Hassan Minaj. Um, he's a fine comedian. I don't have anything personal against him. But it's this kind of like sort of fake, or maybe, maybe really woke comedy. I don't really know. I don't really take it seriously that way. But like I always say this to people. It's like, dude, if you go to a stand-up comedy show and what you're looking for is your world reinforced, I mean, you always want a little bit of that. It's not like you don't want any of that, but that's not really the way to do it. The way to do it is to be challenged. I said it last week. I'll say it again with your comedy. You should, be, you should go to a show and feel like a little bit of horror. If not for Patrice O'Neill, uh, it'd be Doug Stanhope. Doug Stanhope's the best comedian alive right now, and to me it's not even like a close second. And I watch actually a fair bit of stand-up comedy. Um, he is doing things that no one else has the guts to do, and he's doing it in a way where he's not asking for permission from the people who hold the cultural uh, uh, levers of power. He simply does it without their, without their concern. Now, it reduces his visibility, but uh, you know, talking about helping his, her mother, his mother kill herself and uh, in defense of school shootings and then anti-religious comedy, you know, some of that's older and a little bit dated, but the whole point being is he's doing it in a way that really nobody else is. Um, Patrice O'Neill was kind of like that. He did some a little bit more racial humor, obviously, given um, different, different set of factors, but I like the kinds of comedians that, I don't mean people who go out there and be like, hey, N-word this or whatever, just to, for titillation, but for people who truly shock and um, surprise people through smart, interesting developed ideas as scandalous as they may be is actually who i prefer so to me doug stanhope and uh, patrice o'neill are my top two bill burr's great too and stuff like that and Chappelle's great but like even Chappelle's last special 
Like, if you want really thought-provoking comedy, that was good. It was fine. It's not even close to what Doug Stanhope does. And to me, when he was alive, Patrice O'Neill was the king. All right, I have to get out of here. This has been a bit of a disaster. I apologize to you guys. So thank you so much for watching. I will make it up to you. Uh, if you got any questions, email me, lukethomasnews at gmail.com. Thank you so much for watching. I Again, I can't be a, a sorry, a, any sorrier than I am. So it's just a bit of a mess, but i got to call it a day on this. So thank you guys for watching. Until next time, stay frosty.